you knew that we couldn't just end the year without trying something new. I mean, do we ever not just get in our heads and be like, you know, let's just do it. Let's see what happens. We led you on with no more interviews for the rest of the year, which, you know, we break our own rules sometimes. So we are trying. There are no rules. There are no rules. What are we talking about? Uh, We're trying a new show format today. New bonus content. Um, Our normal episodes aren't exactly like guest friendly because it's two of us. We tell each other things as they happen in history. So we are going to try something new with our friend David from Verse Chorus Verse. And I explain it in the Zoom call. So I'm not going to explain it twice. I'm Leah. I'm Beth Ann. And this is She Will Rock You. Where are they getting a dub in a CBS executive meeting? No. Bitch, don't touch my thermostat. <laughs> the ghost be like, pull up before I haul you. Let me turn down the thermostat. Who is this man? We're on page one, guys. This is She Will Rock You. All right, we are here and we are joined by David from the Verse Chorus Verse Show, which we're very excited to have. Mm-hmm. Welcome, David. Thank you. It's good to be here. And we are trying out something a little different that we've never done on our show before. So uh, longtime listeners of our show will know that Bethann and I always have to mention when something is on the Rolling Stones 500 greatest albums of all time, which Rolling Stone recently updated. So now our yeah. like past episodes are all out of whack. Um, They're songs so, too, right? Didn't they do a song one now? Yes. Mm-hmm. And... Both were very much due for an update, which we can talk about when we get into this. Um, But we were like trying to find some kind of format that would work to have a guest on because presenting the history in the way that we do doesn't always lend itself to a guest format. And so we're going to try each presenting one of the 500 greatest albums we've each chosen. We started with a list of 10. We each chose one from that list of 10. So we're starting at the top, top 10 were our options this time and um before we get into this david why don't you tell us about your show uh verse course verse we are coming to an end of our first season uh, there's four of us now so it started with sven and i who are old buddies that used to be in a band together and and all that sort of stuff and we we're talking once and I was kind of appalled that he knew absolutely nothing about Radiohead and he <laughs> was kind of appalled that I knew really not much about Stevie Wonder actually. So that was the first episode. We just decided to do it and along the way we picked up a guy that goes by the name of Evil Jimmy and then a girl <laughs> that goes by the name of Rachel Polio um, who does a good job of keeping us a little bit mainstream instead of just talking about music from the 60s and 70s all the time Mm -hmm. and that's that's our show we talk albums and uh bands and specific years in rock and that's simple stuff just music you guys are like the variants of how our podcast started yeah really yes so our friend lauren had no clue who fleetwood mac was and before we that's right because me and Leah were talking, we were just like, "We do a Disney podcast." No, we were. We knew. We knew it was there. We just didn't know the topic. And when she said that, I remember we were in her studio apartment, and we just looked at each other. We're like, "That's it. <laughs> That's the topic." And 
it's worked so far. <laughs> yep. Podcast is great. So far, it's been you, pretty good. Thank you. Yeah, you do thank a great you. job. Thank mm-hmm. you. I remember you, I don't remember what you were talking about, but you were talking about an album or a group that we had just touched on. And I remember listening and thinking, they know so much more about the history of this. Was it ABBA? <laughs> no, it wasn't ABBA. It was something recent that we dropped. And yeah. I remember you commenting it on our Facebook or on our well, Instagram. Well, I was very into, you guys did Bonnie Raitt and I am... Mm-hmm. I love Bonnie Raitt, um, love Bonnie Raitt. So that might've been, but yeah, you, you do, you really do. You do a great job. Thank you. We're excited to, to have a men meddling, mulling, mixing of worlds. I don't know what the word I'm looking for is. <laughs> men men This is meddling? normally Beth Ann who gets confused. <laughs> I know I was confused. Don't we give switch. me that look. <laughs> we switched for a second. Did I just become the AP student of this podcast? I'm tired, okay? Uh, I don't know where that was going. Um, but let's let's get into these records. I thought we would go in order that they are on the 2020 Rolling Stone 500 Greatest Albums, which means, Bethann, you're first with number five. Oh. Oh, great. Stevie Wonder's Songs in the Key of Life. Yeah. Okay. So for everyone who... Way back in the day, we're talking episode seven, we dropped the Stevie Wonder episode. And if you're wondering, is she going to basically do the same outline? <laughs> you're damn right I am. Work smarter, I, not harder. I did the research then, and I'm pulling it now. Um, so yeah, because we do have a breakdown of some quick facts I'm going to give you. The best songs, which you might as well just buckle in and get you know, yourself a cup of coffee because that's going to be a long fucking segment. (laughs) And then why it should be on this list. Maybe equally as long. But I'm going to start with a quick fact. And let's talk about the time where Stevie is in his life when this before this album comes to be. And at this point, you know, he's still doing really good in music, um, but he's just and he has a name for himself, but he's just at this point where he just doesn't want to do music anymore. And he moves to Ghana to help children with disabilities. Um, he's fed up with the U.S. government, which I understand at times. But and then he mood. decides mood, and then he <laughs> decides to sign um, another contract with Motown, and it's his biggest deal to date. It's like 172 million dollars equivalent today. I think they basically begged him to come yeah. back. Yeah. Well, I mean, yeah, I mean. Because it's Stevie fucking Wonder. I'm he's sorry. In, he, Can I swear on this? Am I, yes. Sorry. Okay. <laughs> no, you're good. Um, I mean, we, we we would have to curse on this podcast because I'm Italian. So you choose cursing first <laughs> and then you decide good, for your good. second language if you want it to be English or Italian. <laughs> so, but anyway, yeah, like they begged him to come on it and because he was such a success. He was a household name at that point so he comes back and he's starting to work on this album and he just i don't know if gano was it was the reason or was the money but he wrote a double album plus a bonus four song ep four songs in the key of life and it took longer than expected it was post-release in october of 75 it needed more mixing so Motown literally dropped shirts that said, we're almost finished. That's it. <laughs> we're almost finished. No context. 
no context. <laughs> like, if meme culture was around then, could you imagine what they would have done with that shirt? But anyway, it does come out in uh, September 28th in 1976. And it's his signature album. It got 10 million units sold. It won four Grammys, including Album of the Year. And it's just his signature album. It's in uh, the Library of Congress's list of albums they preserve that they think is aesthetically <laughs> significant. But a lot of artists have cited this album as either their favorite, al- favorite album or one that has influenced them. And that yeah. includes Elton John, which is cool because Stevie Wonder is on Elton John's new yes. album that dropped. Lockdown Sessions. Lockdown Series. Or Sessions, I'm sorry. Um, Michael Jackson, George Michael, Prince, Mariah Carey, Whitney Houston, and Phil Anselmo from Pantera. Ooh. So those are your quick facts. Now to the segment that I have been looking forward to talking about, like for a long time, I'm so glad we're digging this back up because when I wrote that episode, I did not fully understand the beauty of this album. To this mm. day, I have listened from that. Uh, that was twenty what twenty nineteen, Leah. Yeah, it's been there? like summer twenty nineteen. I have may have listened to this album back and front about twenty times. I I've been waiting to get to my mom's house so I can raid her vinyl collection so I can grab it on vinyl. <laughs> I love this album so much, and so you know we have this segment called best songs, and I hate that I have to do this. I hate it. But here is a very. I didn't say best songs. I said most iconic songs. Well, I heard best songs, and I'm going best songs because I'm skipping the iconic songs because Sir Duke is okay compared to the rest (laughs) of the songs on this album. So I'm changing it. Um, So the best songs, in my opinion. Oh, so you had originally picked songs that you are changing now. Is that what you're saying? No, I, as I often do, and as Leah will tell you, I misunderstood the assignment. She did not understand the assignment. (laughs) As is a common theme in our friendship. (laughs) I got it. And so um, my favorite songs and best songs, Summer Soft, Pastime Paradise, As, I Wish, Black Man, Knocks Me Off My Feet, Love Is All You Need Today, and If You Need to Know the Most Iconic Songs, Sir Duke as and I wish. Um, so you weren't you weren't upset at all that he stole Pastime Paradise from Coolio? <laughs> I mean, I'm more upset he stole it from Weird Al Yankovic. I thought that was a weird flex. I am sure you mentioned this when you talked about it on the episode that it was sampled from Pastime Paradise. I did. But yeah. listening to this, I was like, what the hell? I, this is my first time listening all the way through this album. Yeah. And it was very disorienting. It's weird, very. right? It's weird. It sucks. I think it sucks because it, well, it doesn't, it doesn't the suck. The song doesn't But suck. it's, it's no. sampling, you know? It's because of the age that I grew up in, that song is kind of ruined for me. Mm-hmm. Not, I mean, I'm not saying Gangster's Paradise isn't an awesome song. It is. But now when I hear this, I can't, it's really hard for me to, take it seriously as a Stevie Wonder song. Yeah. I feel that. That's how I felt listening to it. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it's I. it has to be one of the most sampled albums of all time because I've heard I've heard Love uh, Love's in Need of Love today on Jay-Z's album 444. 
uh, Pastime Paradise, as has been sampled, like all this music. I mean, he yeah has contributed so this album just really launched not just a lot of artists but i feel like the whole genre of art like i'm trying to find my words see i'm pulling Aaliyah now um <laughs> rude really launched like a lot of <clears throat> electronic music in the sense of so much was pulled from mm-hmm. anyway I don't know where I'm going with it. We're it's just a very gonna... sample. Well, he also Thank it you. is. Well, he was doing so much work with the the Korg stuff and the keyboard stuff and, before and the Moog, the Moog, the Moog, the whole Moog. The Moog. Do you, I'm sure you guys probably talked about that in your episode, and yeah, all that stuff. It's we often cited. We do. Lo- we love a good Moog. What can mm-hmm. we say? Um, but as far as for these songs, and this goes into my why it should be on this list. So they're kind of all blending together here. When I think of this album, the only word that runs through my head is richness. Mm. I, every song is so meticulously crafted and there's complexities throughout. And it's not just complexities in chord structure, it's complexities in how he's pulling the certain instruments and how those instruments are playing and just, like Summer Soft, when I heard it for the first time, I listened to it four times in a row because <laughs> I couldn't get over the way his, it goes soft and then it goes into that really good and she's gone and it just keeps modulating on top of it and on top of it. Like it it offered so much. And so the musicality is there. The execution is there. And it just shows what an artist can achieve. And then the themes of each song are also amazing because he gives a little bit of something for everybody. There's love songs, there's philosophical songs, there's songs about growing up. And then there's just activist songs, which, you know, I think during that time you saw a little bit more of the mixture of, um, activist songs with love songs, which I thought was interesting to remind people what was at stake. Like Marvin Gaye did this with what's going on. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And so that is why it's absolutely correct that this is ranked so high on the list. Personally, I think it should go higher. I, I think this is a perfect album, a 10 out of 10, a hundred percent all the way. There's nothing wrong with this album. Not a single thing. So you kind of answered my bonus question that I didn't tell anyone about, but I added in. Um, But I'm going to ask formally. So in the 2003 version of this list, it was number 56. Which is bullshit. That's insane. Yes. So do you think it deserved its jump? 100%. I don't think people understood Can I ask, was there another Stevie Wonder? I'm sure the answer is no, but do you know if there was there another Stevie Wonder album ahead of that let me check real quick I'm i mean not... there could, i don't think there could have been i don't know unless it was the like inner visions or original list is real questionable <laughs> it was probably uh the one with superstition on it let me uh, see talking book talking book that's what it was i mean the original list has number one is sergeant peppers so careful I mean, there's nothing wrong with it, but compared Stop. to I'm number one is now Marvin Gaye, which is um, good. Yes, I love that album too. 
Uh, that was list, one of the things I I don't love the 500 list, but I do remember looking at the top 10 you sent and thinking like, I can't, what do you argue against these 10? You know what I mean? Like maybe, maybe. there was one that I, but it, so, I remember thinking it's really hard to argue against any of these. The 2003 list has number 23 is Inner Visions by Stevie Wonder. So that would have been the first occurrence of Stevie on the list. Said so Inner Visions... Uh, yeah, that's insane to have that. And I'm not saying Inner Visions is a great album, but above this, Songs in the Key of Life is so renownedly known as the the culmination of Stevie Wonder's prowess. Like it's it's kind of crazy. It's yeah. his magnum opus. There, it perfect. really is. Yeah. And you, I really like what you touched on. That I think if you pull any musician. From any t- from any time past the seventies, mm-hmm. this album is going to be mentioned as one of their influence, like within their top five, probably. Mm-hmm. Yeah, one hundred percent. Massive. Any final thoughts on Stevie Wonder? I mean, this may be like this may be my favorite album of that time, if that makes sense. It's actually not my favorite Stevie Wonder album. Oh, you're kidding. No. <laughs> I'm just kidding. Sorry. <laughs> but like, I think this is my favorite album of that time period of the 70s. It, I think it's, 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 it's just perfection. I have no, no other way of describing it. Anyway, it's, I'm done. It's an amazing album. It really is. And I don't, I can't really think of the three that he hit, the talking book into inner visions into this. I, I, I was thinking about this today, actually trying to trying to put together some final thoughts. And the only other artist I could think of that might've put three together like that would be Bowie when he did mm-hmm. hunky, hunky Dory and Ziggy and uh, Aladdin Sane. Mm-hmm. I don't really know. It's just crazy. Yeah. Who's next All right. to you? That so you were number five with songs in the key of life. The Beatles Abbey Road is number six, so I am next. And this is our first time ever talking about the Beatles on this show. Let's just take a moment to appreciate that. Wow, we're gonna have to holding off for it. It might be our last episode when it comes the day where the curtain closes. I will finally cover the Beatles. <laughs> That's going to take like at least two episodes. So. Oh, it's it's a three part series. I've already mapped it out. <laughs> how it's going to go. We've, we'll get we've to like half touched on, we've done a couple episodes where we've talked about favorites. So we've mentioned the Beatles, but mm-hmm. we've, it's first season. I'm not touching that yet. Yeah. There's no. <laughs> yeah. We're, we're what? Two years in? We still haven't touched it. <laughs> yeah. No, not ready. <laughs> yeah. 100%. Um, but we're going to do a crash course in just Abbey Road right here, right now. And when I say crash course, I mean like the actual Cliff Notes version Sorry, we don't have seven hours for this episode. (laughs) We have a 45-minute Zoom limit. (laughs) So Abbey Road is the Beatles' 11th studio album. Um, And if I remember the list correctly, it is their first instance appearing in the 500, which is very interesting because the 2003 version, I think, has three Beatles albums in the top 10. Um, So it has two before Abbey Road? Yes, so in the 2003 version, Revolver is number three, Rubber, Rubber Soul is number five, um, and 
The Beatles' White Album is number 10. Oh, and Sgt. Pepper's number one. So there's four in the top 10. Wow. (laughs) So in the current list, I I can't open my doc right now because it will crash my computer, but I'm pretty (laughs) sure it's the the only one in the top 10, which Revolver might be in there too. But anyway, they they, uh, spiced it up a little bit in the top 10. Revolver would be in mine. Um... It was released on September 26, 1969 by Apple Records. It's named after the location of EMI Studios in London. And of course, this is where the cover takes place. Um, We'll talk about the cover a little bit more in a few minutes. Um, But this album incorporated, you know, typical Beatles genre mixing, blues, rock, pop. It uses our friend the Moog synthesizer quite a bit. (laughs) Yeah. Um, when this was released, a lot of people found the road to be inauthentic and complained that it was artificially produced. My, how times have changed. What? Lots of critics did not like this when it came out. It's so iconic. It's on like a t-shirt in FYE right now. (laughs) Yeah. For a ridiculous price. May I add you? Critics are idiots. We, I have to remind myself because I'm a critic now that I have a music podcast and I'm kind of an idiot. So (laughs) it comes with the territory, doesn't it? Exactly. I've become stupider. (laughs) Pitchfork would have given it a scathing review if Pitchfork was around. (laughs) (laughs) The the articles from Loudwire. Could you imagine this is a fake road? (laughs) Click the link in the bio to learn more. Um, I lost my spot. Hold on. So, obviously, the opinion of this album has changed quite a bit in in the time since its release, and um, many consider it the Beatles' finest album. Of course, it's always up for debate um, in such a diverse catalog as they have. And it's worth pointing out, like I said, we don't have time to go on the whole history of this album. The Wikipedia page is very long, but this was written in a very turbulent time in the band's history. It was completed only three weeks after the recording sessions for Get Back. The band was not liking each other. Um, and they they made this album with the intention of getting back in the studio and doing things the way they used to, yeah. which is funny considering how much, quote, artificial production they use because they weren't using that on their original albums, but whatever. So let's talk about some iconic songs. The whole album is iconic, as I think we're going to find if we continue this series on every album. Mm-hmm. Um, but we got to talk about Here Comes the Sun, because arguably one of the most recognizable Beatles songs out there. Um, so George Harrison wrote this song in earlier in the year, 1969, at Eric Clapton's country house Ooh. when he was skipping recording sessions with the band. Yeah. <laughs> He, he said that it was starting to feel like school or like work, and so he wanted to skip and have a fun day off hanging out with Eric Clapton, which, do you blame him? No, not really. <laughs> no. Um, and he was going through a really rough patch in his life. The band was fighting, um, but he had some personal issues going on. On top of that, he had temporarily quit the Beatles at the time when he wrote the song. He had just been arrested for marijuana possession, and he had just had his tonsils removed, so... Mm wasn't feeling too great and so he wrote the song of you know things are gonna get better 
let's think of something hopeful. And he saved it for the sessions for this album. Yeah. The second iconic song that I chose is my personal favorite off of Abbey Road. And it's Because. And the song is my favorite because of the um, Across the Universe arrangement of this song. Mm -hmm. That might be a little slanderous, but a little. I really like it. <laughs> um, I I'm personally a fan of Cross the Universe, and I know that's an unpopular opinion as time has gone on. I heard the arrangement first, so don't don't hate me. But I, I, I don't hate people. <laughs> don't hate my opinions. <laughs> um, so, because was written by John Lennon, and he was inspired to write this song when he listened to Yoko Ono playing Beethoven's Moonlight Sonata on the piano. Oh, that's right. Yeah, he was laying on the sofa listening to her play, and suddenly it just hit him, and he was like, can you play those chords backwards? And so she did, and he wrote the lyrics to Because around those chords backwards, which is why it sounds familiar and haunting, because it's, it's backwards from what we're used to hearing it. He did add in a three-part harmony with Lennon, McCartney, and Harrison into the final mix, which is why it has that like super layered sound. Uh, and they considered this the hardest vocals they've ever attempted in the studio. <laughs> Makes sense. Finally, we have Octopus's Garden, which... <laughs> really? Which is not what I thought you were going to say was your favorite song. No, I actually... I have mixed feelings on Octopus's Garden because the very first time I heard it was in a Muppet sing-along when I was a kid. Because there's a Muppet <laughs> version of it. Um, it's kind of awesome. But after... I'm skipping ahead of myself. So this one's written and sung by Ringo, which is not a common thing to happen in the band. <laughs> no, no. They, they let him have a song once in a while. So this was his second and last song that he ever sang vocals on. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I think oh, there was a joke that it was just, it was the last album. They knew it. Like, yeah. Fuck it. Go ahead, Ringo. Go do your thing. Octopus's Garden. Great. <laughs> do it. Have your moment. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, when asked about the song, George Harrison said, Octopus's Garden is Ringo's song. It's only the second song he's ever written, mind you. And it's lovely. <laughs> <laughs> He did say that the song gets very deep into the listener's consciousness because it's so peaceful. Um, and like I said, it was the last song that he ever got to do vocals on. So he had hold, his moment. Hold on. <laughs> the second song this man has ever written is titled <laughs> Octopus's Garden. Yes. Yeah. I just want to be a fly on the wall when he just goes to the band who has made platinum selling songs yeah. and goes guys i got it octopus's garden listen up mate i wrote a song it's called octopus's garden it's a lot of drugs back then bethann uh, oh i know, know. You know why he wrote even song? past the drugs yeah. you want to know why he wrote this song because that's my next bullet point oh i do want to know uh so the idea for the song came about when ringo was on a boat belonging to comedian peter sellers in sardinia in 1968 he ordered fish and chips for lunch but instead got squid i don't know how you make that mix up they are very <laughs> different shapes but whatever um and it was the first time he'd ever eaten squid he said it was a bit rubbery it tasted like chicken you know the usual stuff um but the boat's captain told star 
or told Ringo about how octopuses will travel along the seabed, picking up little stones and cute little objects, like shiny things that fall to the floor, and build little gardens. And so he was inspired <laughs> by this little image of an octopus building a garden to write a song. It's not even, it's not even L- uh, LCD. LSD. <laughs> not even or LSD. LCD. It or was LCD. just a fishing trip. <laughs> Um, and he later admitted that he just wanted to be under the sea too. So maybe Aww. there were drugs involved. Maybe he just wanted to go away. I don't really know. In 2014, he actually wrote a children's book around this premise, which I think is the cutest and one of the most That's wholesome adorable. things I've ever heard. I feel like I remember that. Yeah. I forgot that it happened, but I remember it was in the news. Um, and then this weekend when I was like prepping my notes for this, I found a remix of Octopus's Garden with Lil Nas X's That's What I Want. Um, it works yes. so well. Ringo was ahead yes. of his time. But <laughs> I need to mention the exchange I saw in the comments. So the, the person who remixed it took out everyone but Ringo's vocals. And it said, did you just make the Beatles better by removing three quarters of the Beatles? And someone said, there is no Beatles. There's only Ringo. The other Beatles don't exist. It's just him moving really fast. <laughs> <laughs> That's awesome. And... <clears throat> It was just timing. Timing was appropriate. Um, so if we take nothing else in this album, the cover alone, like we said, is one of the most iconic, if not the most iconic, maybe second only to Dark Side or Sergeant Peppers. Yeah. Like those are the other ones you see on T-shirts all the time. We just we just talked about Joy Division. Their mm-hmm. their album, the, the black album with the white waves. Mm-hmm. That's, yeah, that one is pretty. pretty that one's crazy, too. But other than that, I can't think of another album that you look at it and you're like, that's that yeah. album. Mm-hmm. Um, but the cover fueled the famous Paul is dead theories because yes. uh, <laughs> we, love a, the theories. we love a good death <laughs> conspiracy. Um, so shortly after the album came out, this theory started spreading across college campuses. So uh, I imagine it's like a TikTok fueled rage where people are just spreading things. <laughs> According to this rumor that that was spreading, the cover was depicting the Beatles walking out of a cemetery during a funeral procession. The procession is led by Lennon because he's dressed in white. He's the religious figure. Ringo is dressed in black. He's the undertaker. Paul is out of step with the others as a barefoot corpse. And George Harrison, who's dressed in denim, was the grave digger. Um, the normally, <laughs> normally left-handed Paul is holding a cigarette in his right hand, indicating that he's an imposter. The number plate on the Volkswagen on the street is 28IF, meaning that if Paul had lived, he would have been 28. (laughs) Despite the fact that he was only 27 at the time that this photo was taken. (laughs) Um, Obviously, the rest of the Beatles got interviewed about this theory. John Lennon said... uh, this is this is a fake rumor, but we appreciate the publicity that it's giving us. <laughs> uh, the fa- my favorite part about this whole conspiracy is that when Paul released his 1993 album, he parodied this cover and called it "Paul is Live." <laughs> That's cool. <laughs> so my final points uh, in the 2003 list, this was number 14. It's now been bumped to number six. Um, I don't know if I agree with it being the first Beatles album on the list. It is a great Beatles album. Are there bad Beatles albums? We're not here to discuss that. 
Uh, but I do think no. In, no, the, sc- <laughs> in the scope of the current 2020 list, I think it it's it's in a rightful spot. Mm-hmm. All right. Any final thoughts on Abbey Road before we move on? I think it's understandable. It's like me personally, it's not my favorite Beatles album, but I it I think it is probably the most iconic. It's yeah. it surprises me that it wasn't initially the first Beatles album on the Rolling Stones top 500. That me surprised too. me when you told me that. I forgot how undiverse the original list was. <laughs> they definitely shook it up for this 2020 version, which I appreciate. I'm going to have to go look at it. It makes sense, though, why it's in the spot that it's in out of all the other Beatles albums because it does have the most hits from it. Yeah. yeah. You know, I mean, mm-hmm. while Sgt. Pepper is an excellent album, it doesn't nearly have all the hits. And that's personally my favorite is Sgt. Pepper. Yeah, I agree. It's a good album. Mm-hmm. <laughs> all right. So now we're going to jump to number 10 which is The Miseducation of Lauren Hill. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It's, I'm going to see, it's it's a little bit kind of what you were talking about with Stevie Wonder because I've talked about this album before on our podcast. So it's a teeny, teeny bit of a cheat. There you go. But it was no, a no, long no. time ago, so I don't know That's how exactly much it. That's exactly it. It's new content. And I really do not have, I do not have the great facts that you two have it's more mishmash of clumsy thoughts but no you're whatever you want to present (laughs) so the miseducation of lauren hill which came out august 25th 1998 uh released by rough house and columbia records so rough house records under columbia um it touches on a lot of things lauren hill's pregnancy turmoil with her with the fujis uh specifically Wyclef Jean uh album's title was inspired by a film and an autograph autobiographical novel The Education of Sonny Carson and Carter G Woodson's The Miseducation of the Negro it uh originally began recording uh in a really nice studio in New York and she got really sick of producers all over the place telling her to add this, do that. We want this, you know, hip hop at that point was not in a good state. It was very punch button and here's your hit. Um, Mm -hmm. think, think puff daddy or something like that. Mm -hmm. And all the producers knew that and were pushing her to that. So she said, fuck it. And she went to Jamaica she went to Tough Gong Studios, which was Bob Marley's studio, mm-hmm. um, uh, where that his sons still owned, and finished the album there. She was very uh, clear that she wanted real instruments, real singing, and and that's that. Um, this album, this album is so goddamn good. It. <laughs> mm-hmm. I, it's um this album is a a 
black female in a time making an album, she was calling so much shit out that needed to be called out in such a poignant, masterful way. Right. Uh, just a brilliant mm-hmm. poet um, that was, you know, like Wycliffe John, for example, had told her not to do this album. They kind of told her it's either the Fugees or it's this um, to where she said, F you, you know, I'm doing this. And it tells you how good this album was because midway through making this album, Wycliffe John went back to her and said that he was willing to be on it. Like he heard, I guess he heard tracks or something and said, okay, well, I'll be on it if you want to. She was like, no, I'm good. Actually, like, I'm going to be fine. Never mind. Good for her. Missed your chance. Exactly. Um, But yeah, it's just, it's this brilliant doo-wop, hip-hop, rap. She doesn't get, she gets so much uh, consideration for her singing, which is second to none, deservingly Mm -hmm. so. You know, she was brought up singing around, you know, like Curtis Mayfield and Aretha Franklin. And so, yeah, she was going to be good. But her rap, she she is yeah. just such an amazing rapper and um she came out with this perfect album this was actually the first album on we we rank all of the albums that we talk about and this was the first album on our podcast that i gave a perfect 10 to because it is it's it's just to me it's a perfect album i think it definitely belongs on the top 500 i think top 10 is perfect i'm not going to argue with putting you know, whatever else is up there, like Songs in the Key in Life or Blood in the Tracks, that mm-hmm. sort of thing. But this deserves its place there for sure. Um, Do you want your mind blown? Yes. It was only number 312 on the 2003 list. Oh, you're <laughs> See, kidding. That, that's not even like if there was ever, I, I already have a hard time taking Rolling Stone seriously. Yeah. But that, <laughs> that right there is, that's ridiculous. When I was pulling the original ranks, I was like, it jumped that much. Because, like, Stevie Wonder jumped, like, 50 spots. Abbey Road jumped, like, 10 spots. And then this jumped over 300 spots. No, this is one of the, if not the best hip-hop albums ever made. Yeah. You know, to have, like, 300, that's that's insane. Um, I My favorite tracks are Everything is Everything, which, uh, actually, John Legend plays on that one. This was before he was John Legend. He was, I did not know that. Yeah, he was a nobody. But uh, um, that one and then Superstar to me are the two. Like every song in this album is incredible. Mm-hmm. But Everything is Everything and Superstar are kind of, if you really want to get the bullet points of what she was trying to say on this album, it's those. Just about how jaded and taken for granted everything had become in the hip hop industry and how it needed to change and she changed she changed it she yeah. completely changed hip hop mm. what i love about her and her story it's like what you were saying um she had a message to say she said it she changed the game and then she just left she, yeah she just left she's like i don't know if it was like a, my work here is done or she just finally got to her I think I, it was the latter. 
from what I studied, I think it got to her. I think everything, you know, one of the, one of the big things is somebody, I don't know if either of you remember this, uh, ever happening, but somebody called in when this was a really big album to the Howard Stern show and said that she had said on some interview or something like that, that, uh, the worst thing that could happen to her is if a white male bought her album and it got that, you know, it was the Howard Stern show. So it's not yeah. like he was, he said, Oh, well let's, we need to fact check this. No, they ran with it and it became a huge story. It was kind of a urban legend when I was in school and she came out when she was confronted with that, she came out and said, that's, you know, she's an artist. She wants things to bring people together. That's ridiculous. But so much of that and she got sued for not putting enough credits on this album because all the people back in new york were like why aren't we on this album and i i think it's a ladder i think she was like i can't she was too i don't know too pure for this mm -hmm. for the music industry maybe well and that's the thing she's a true artist and sometimes with true artists they really just want to focus on their craft but it's hard when the industry puts money and algorithms. I mean, later it became algorithms, but money and sales first. Yeah. And when you see how, you know, essentially the sausage is made, it's very hard as a true artist to put up with it. So I understand where she was coming from. Absolutely. And I think, I don't know. I think there was other stuff too. Just, you know, I think when you're, if you, listen to her lyrics. Yeah. Some of those people, man, they're too smart to, it's hard to function in society when you're that freaking smart. When yeah. You see things the way you can. And, and even musically with this album, the way it flows, like the way the songs are listed, it just, it feels, even though they're separate songs, it feels like it's always a continuation of the next yeah. song. And I, you know, and I mean that in the best possible way, like it it's is just so well cohesive. thought out. Yeah. Incredibly. Very cohesive. Yeah. Yeah. I'm glad that you chose this because hip hop is not a genre I usually listen to. Like it's probably my most lacking historical knowledge genre. So I feel educated now. <laughs> <laughs> I I have a holiday. There's one day a year uh, where I turn this vinyl on and I have a scotch and I, yeah, it's like my night where I'd kick everybody out of the house and just listen to Lauren Hill. Just I love incredible. that. <laughs> All right. I think on that note, we've reached the end of the episode. Thank you, David, so much for joining us. This was Thanks yes, for having me. a really fun experiment. <laughs> yeah, that was, you are the guinea pig. Yeah. It was really hard to talk to talk that little about these three albums. That was crazy. Thank you for listening. You can leave us a review on Apple Podcasts if you like this show. Special thanks to Death of Fawn for our intro riff. You can visit our website at shewillrockyou.com. There you'll find links to our social, the show notes, and a place where you can contact us. Other than that, don't do drugs. <laughs>